My guest for the episode of this podcast is Professor Joel Creek. Professor Joel is a professor of politics at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. His research focuses upon slavery and abolition, mobility and work, social movements, repairing historical wrongs, and the history and politics of Africa. Professor Joel is a co-founder and editor of the Beyond Trafficking and Slavery Project, which is housed within Open Democracy. He's author of several books which includes the book entitled The Anti-Slavery Project From the Slave Trade to Human Trafficking. He also authored another book which is entitled Unfinished Business: A Contemporary Survey of Historical and Contemporary Slavery. His most recent project with Beyond Trafficking Slavery was It's Time to Get Off the Fence on Sex Workers' Rights, which is published in 2021. In this episode of Global Development Review podcast, Professor Joel shares his insights about the history of slavery and we also discuss about the contemporary discourse surrounding modern day slavery, human trafficking, forced labor. I welcome Professor Joel to Global Development Review podcast and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Uh, Professor Joel, thank you very much for accepting my invitation and joining me for this podcast. Uh, my uh, first question to you, and I just would like to understand within the context of our discussion, uh, is uh, could you please share your insights about the history of slavery, and can we say that st- slavery still exists in contemporary world? Yeah. Um. Thanks, Jafar. I I really appreciate this 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 opportunity to have this conversation. Um, as you probably appreciate, you you didn't start with a kind of easy or small question. Like slavery is one of those kind of foundational issues, in the sense that it's however much we might want not want it to be kind of integral to to kind of human history and experience. So. It, it, it's a large and difficult question, and it's also a question that, that understandably arouses very strong emotions due to the the, the, the history and legacies of enslavement, and, and more specifically, the, the the histories and legacies of racial enslavement in the Americas and the way in which that structures our world today, both kind of economically and politically. So there's a lot we can say about slavery. Um, I'm not sure that that I can go into everything I might want to say, but what I would say is that we need to be careful about applying this category, this language, and and all the baggage that it carries historically to how we think about practices and problems in our time today, in our world today. So when we think about slavery we've got to recognize that historically this was an institution it was a system of exploitation it was regulated by laws it was governed by the state it was backed up by police it was defined by economic interests and in the case of americas at least you're talking about a system which is kind of integral to economics and society so when people take that history that institution 
and they apply it to practices and issues today, there's, there's real risks associated with that move. Um, there's risks associated with kind of diluting and decentering what was distinctive about the history of enslavement and its legacies. Um, but there's also this danger where you're not comparing like with like. So, so the, the system of slavery that I described historically is, is one where there's not a lot of ambiguity regarding slave status. It, it's a collective condition. It's something that people who are designated under law as having certain disabilities and vulnerabilities. The, the language which is often used is, is that of property and there's ways of talking and engaging with that. Um, but you're talking about a, a collective group of people who the law says have a common and similar status. That's generally not what people mean when they talk about slavery today. What they really mean is, is, is a subcategory of people. So, so instead of talking about all people sharing something in common, you're instead looking at categories of, say, migrants or, or categories of workers. And, and, and you're not describing all the workers. You're not describing all the migrants. You're instead reserving and selectively applying this language of slavery to a small subcategory within this larger body of workers, within this larger body of migrants. So, so you're not comparing the, the, the same types of things in the same ways. And, and this is an issue analytically in the sense that you, you invariably end up with a series of arguments about whether and on what terms you can use the category of slavery today. Because it's not self-evident that people in situations of vulnerability and distress and exploitation should always and automatically be described as slaves. And in a lot of cases, they don't want that label themselves. They resist it because of the ways in which it, it kind of denies that their agency or their connection to, to, to work and movement and so on. Um, but also there's, there's a risk politically with, with using this, this language of slavery. Because when you take slavery and you begin to talk about slavery today, you begin to talk about these exceptional cases of, of severe exploitation and abuse, you, you're ending up with a narrative frame that says that your task in policy terms, your task in activism terms, your task in legal terms is to specifically prioritize and seek to save or rescue or redeem these people in acute situations of, of vulnerability and distress, the people you want to call modern slaves. Now, this framing has a bunch of implications. It, it carries with it the idea that the best way of resolving problems is to intervene via rescue, which means that it, it tends to, to lead to solutions that are very strongly tied to, to, to the police, and, and kicking in doors and engaging in raids and pulling people out and seeking to, to, to kind of remove them from their circumstances, even if they don't want to go. Um, and secondly, from a diagnostic standpoint, focusing on these exceptional cases sets you up in, 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 in a bit of a political 
and policy cul-de-sac. So the category of slave in the world today gets applied to a huge numbers of different things. So you'll see it applied to, to bonded laborers in India, you'll see it applied to, to people in North Korean gulags, you'll see it applied to Shrimpo, captains, Shrimpo workers in Thailand, you'll see it to workers mining coltan in, in the Congo, you'll see it applied to you know, domestic workers in, in the homes of diplomats or construction workers building stadiums and skyscrapers in Dubai. So there's a huge range of different things. And what you're saying when you try and combat slave, modern slavery is you're saying that you're going to try and identify and tease out and specifically target the worst of the worst cases in all of these different examples all over the world. And, and that's your platform. That's your starting point. You're going to engage with uh, seeking to address the worst of the worst. But you've made two major, you've made two moves that, that come with a lot of baggage. Firstly, instead of dealing with the rights of workers in general, the rights of migrants in general, You've said that legally and politically and in activist terms, you're, you're going to ignore everyone. Or maybe ignore is too strong a word, but you're going to deprioritize people who don't satisfy this exceptional threshold associated with modern slavery. So, so what that means, in effect, is instead of dealing with the, the rights and protections of workers on shrimp boats, you're trying to target the, the, the minority of people at the bottom end of the labor chain as specifically modern slaves. So, so you're setting yourself up a very hard task. You have to identify and target a subcategory of a population. They're not easy to find. They're not easy to reach. They're legally and politically difficult to separate from the larger numbers of migrants and workers. Um, and at the same time, you're saying that you're going to do that across all of these different domains. So this cause of modern slavery aggregates a whole bunch of different things. It, it throws together wartime abuses with migrant workers, with issues around commercial sex, with issues associated with child labor. And, and you've set yourself up and you've said fighting modern slavery means fighting all of these different things. And, and it's just not conceptually or politically a particularly useful or compelling platform because you've, you've tried to target these exceptional cases. You've ignored the larger population within which they arise and, and you've set up a model where your principal model of intervention is the idea that, that these people are in acute distress and deserve rescue. So we have to be careful firstly about using this language of slavery too freely. It, it risks diluting the, the histories and legacies of racial enslavement and, and racial capitalism. And then secondly, just it's not a particularly useful starting point for an intervention if, if you've set yourself up to identify and intervene and rescue a small subcategory of people within these much larger populations. Yeah, thank you, uh, Joel, for this insight. As, as you already mentioned, like 
in contemporary world, the cases like bonded labor, child labor, domestic workers, and the workers who are working at the extreme of the marginalization are, have been regarded as, you know, are framed as uh, uh, slaves. Uh, and over the past few decades, we have seen that human trafficking is also compared as a kind of a modern day slavery. And I just would like to understand from you, also in, in, hist- in historical context as well, like uh, why why this uh, concept of uh, our, the, this term modern day slavery emerged suddenly during early decade of 2000 and also how do you see this comparison of, of slavery with human trafficking? Are they both are the same thing or is there any difference between these two discourses yeah that, that's a tricky one it, yeah. it's it's not so much a, a, a big question as a technical legal question and and I, I think it's worth firstly just setting out the the three main ways of thinking about this on, on the first one is is human trafficking the human trafficking as a, as a frame of reference has a slightly different historical genesis. It arises out of uh, forms of moral panic, anxiety about movement and sexuality around this idea of white slavery in, in Europe and, and North America in the late 19th and early 20th century. So you have under international law, white slavery acts, and what people are really engaged with here is is is, is the, the status of, of commercial sexual exploitation and prostitution. So so that's kind of one basket of, of stuff that, that is on the table in terms of, of this idea of human trafficking. Then in addition to that, which you didn't mention, is is this idea of forced labor. So so forced labor has its own kind of historical genesis. It, it, it kind of emerges out of a set of conversations which mostly take place under the ILO, the International Labor Organization. And here the key touchstone is the, the 1930 Forced Labor Convention, which when it was drafted is actually not so much against forced labor as the regulation of forced labor. And, and under colonial rule at that time, and particularly in, 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 in the colonial Africa, you see colonial powers compelling uh, people to work on railroads, people to, to work on mines, and, and to, to so on, to, to grow specific crops. And the most infamous example of this is, is the, the red rubber in the Belgian Congo, where the King Leopold's kind of multinational contingent of criminals worked millions of people to death. So there's this element. There's there's forced labor and then there's human trafficking. And then sitting alongside that is this this conversation around slavery. And and what's happened is historically the slavery and the forced labor conversation have overlapped and intersected at various points. There's there's times where they get quite close together. And then periodically they get kind of disaggregated because forced labor gets caught up in a conversation during the Cold War about the, the Soviets who, who had the gulags and, and the, the uh, U.S. and its allies, which had colonial labor regimes. And they didn't want to connect that too much to slavery. So they moved the, 
the slavery connection to forced labor in and out at various points. From the 90s onwards, so at the end of the Cold War, you initially had a situation where, where human trafficking was the, the dominant frame of reference. And so human trafficking arises out of concerns with organized crime. It's tied to, to anxieties about migration, particularly in relation to the collapse of the, the Soviet bloc and people moving from, from east to west. And, and initially, that was the, the dominant frame of reference. And as the, the white slavery kind of panic language implies, a lot of it was tied to issues of, of xenophobia and, and racism, but also concern with racialized anxieties about uh, prostitution and commercial sexual exploitation. So, so in that initial phase, which kind of culminates in the, 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 the Palermo trafficking protocol, um, or, which is known for the city, city in Italy where it was drafted, human trafficking was, was definitely the dominant frame of reference. And, and the Palermo trafficking protocol, as, as many people will know, is tied to a concern with transnational organized crime. So, so initially, that's the, the starting point. Over time, however, there's been a move to pair this language of slavery with the language of trafficking. And, and the, one of the principal catalysts for this came in the UK, which had its Modern Slavery Act, which enshrined in law the idea that there was this legal category called modern slavery, which has been emulated elsewhere in places like Australia and Canada. Um, so... so for a long time, slavery was this kind of empty signifier. It was this this floating idea which you would apply to describe the, the very worst of the worst cases, but it didn't really have a lot of fixed legal meaning. Um, but the UK Modern Slavery Act gives it a bit of legal heft. And, and in addition to that, there's also a, a bunch of international jurisprudence uh, arising out of the... the um, International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, uh, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and then more recently the, the ICC judgment, most notably that of Dominic Ongwa, where the language of slavery and enslavement, because it's enslavement under the ICC, um, becomes the basis for criminal prosecutions. So, so initially, we have a lot of conversation about trafficking. We have trafficking legislation. And then we have this kind of slavery layer that gets added over the top, partly because there's domestic legislation and partly also because there's all these international criminal cases going on where the language of slavery and the criminal elements of crime associated with slavery become kind of more relevant than they had previously. And that meant that people have resuscitated a colonial era convention from 1926, which has this definition of slavery, which is now being rendered operable once again through its connection to the ICC and, and other things. So that's the second cluster. And then thirdly, you have this historical concern with forced labor in the ILO. Now, for most of the, the post-Cold War period, the ILO was pretty reluctant to get into the, the, the this modern slavery conversation. Like they, they would say things like forced labor, which is sometimes referred to modern slavery. So, so uh, within the ILO system, 
there was this reluctance to, to, to kind of really engage with, with slavery as an analytical category. They understood it as an emotive category, a political category. But that changed with the emergence of, of Alliance 8.7, which in UN speak gave the ILO its big leadership role amongst all the other international organizations and by embracing this language of modern slavery, the ILO gets its own kind of like baton to, to carry and to champion. So Alliance 8.7 is worth mentioning, not because they're doing that much. I'm not sure they're doing that much at all. It's because this is the culmination of a process which saw these three different categories come together. So under Alliance 8.7, modern slavery gets defined as essentially interchangeable and equivalent to human trafficking and essentially interchangeable and equivalent to forced labor to the point where you just kind of throw them all together. You talk about them being an umbrella term. And at this point, there's not a lot of daylight in practical terms between trafficking, forced labor and modern slavery at least as far as Alliance 8.7 and, and the people that follow that approach adhere to. I would note, however, and, and this may anticipate a, a, another question, that a lot of the world doesn't talk about modern slavery. You'll still see human trafficking as the, the primary frame of reference. And also, and, and this harks back to the, the white slavery conversation, a lot of what is going on um, under the banner of, of fighting slavery, trafficking, forced labor, whatever you want to call it, is, is specifically and sometimes even exclusively concerned with questions around commercial sexual exploitation. So, so this, this grand rubric of, of Alliance 8.7, fighting modern slavery, fighting child labor, a, a lot of it's rhetoric. It doesn't have a, a lot of substance behind it. You'll see various forms of, of modern slavery listed in, in various documents. So people will talk about sex trafficking, labor trafficking, forced marriage, uh, child labor, forced begging, organs, all the rest of it. And, and it looks very nice on a PowerPoint slide. It looks good on a flowchart. But if you actually track where the vast majority of the energy and interest goes, you quickly fold back into a recognition that people are not really overly concerned in policy terms with the, the, the Yazidis that were enslaved under ISIS when ISIS was running Syria and Iraq. You'll see them on a list of, of forms of slavery, but the, the investment in that topic is massively dwarfed by this abiding and singular concern with, with commercial sex and commercial sexual exploitation. So here, this broad rubric of trafficking, modern slavery, forced labor, it conceals as much of it reveals because people are not equally interested or invested in all of the different things that come under this rubric of modern slavery. When, when push comes to shove, they're almost overwhelmingly concerned with this question of, of commercial sex and what to do about it. Yeah, thank you, Joel, for these insights. Also, as you were talking about UN Palermo Protocol and trafficking, and uh, it also brought me to this question that it's been like 
two decades that the protocol has uh, you know been produced and implemented across the world and uh, there have been a lot of research uh, you know about the implementation and and the effect of these proto protocol or new anti trafficking policies and broadly the evidences from the research shows that as you also pointed that is mainly uh, targeted you know people who are into commercial sex work and uh, and it has uh, also you know conflated um, you know trafficking with 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 prostitutions or sex work and and there is also a question about uh, denial of agency in the protocol or 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 in all these anti trafficking interventions so i'm i'm just wondering like how do you see are based on your own research uh, what are the implications of these policies are using modern slavery rhetoric with as, as a comparison with human trafficking are are are, are the policies like un protocol or other anti trafficking policies like modern slavery act that you were mentioning so how how do you see the implication on the marginal or targeted individuals that these policies are are you know uh, intervene or they they are intervening or they are meant for yeah that that's an an interesting one i i i have to concede that i i kind of go back and forth in terms of of where i land on that set of of issues um so so there is a version of this where like my preference amongst the the three baskets that that i could kind have of, brought up is that that we should primarily be be talking about forced labor I, i i think that slavery carries too much baggage it it's tied to 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 ideas of rescue and and the police and it's not so helpful human trafficking is is a form of moral panic it gets tied to to this these kind of high anxieties about people being kidnapped and all kinds of 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 unrealistic and in and sociologically significant yet not practically relevant stuff so there's a reason for example that the trafficking is is the one of the key preoccupations of people like QAnon it it has all of the the the, the ingredients of of a, of a salacious and emotionally compelling story but it doesn't really connect to to the world as it's practiced 99.9% of the time So I like the idea. If you ask me which of the three I pick, I pick forced labor. But at the same time, I think we've got to be careful at assuming that the language drives policy. So so as as intellectuals as researchers as academics, we're we're very invested in the idea that that words matter. and that if you can change the 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 language if you can change the framing in some way the assumption is that that the, this will have kind of trickle down effects if you can get the category right you'll shape the policy right and if you shape the policy right you'll lead to 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 better outcomes and 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 this is where this conversation about you know what's the difference between trafficking and slavery and forced labor lads over time i i become hesitant to to kind of assume that that's how it works and and the example i'd point to here is 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 a clumsy and obvious one but is still a consequential one and that is is donald trump um donald trump sought to justify building his ridiculous wall with mexico 
in anti-trafficking terms, and and he had these these horrible kind of images of of, of, of women abducted with duct tape and all kinds of, of the worst possible kind of tropes of, of, of kind of criminality and vulnerability and, and, and sexual voyeurism and rescue. Um, so Trump uses this language of anti-trafficking to, to, to justify, uh, you know, his standard racist xenophobic garbage. But it's not clear to me that, that anti-trafficking is doing any work here whatsoever. Trump was going to do what Trump was going to do. Um, anti-trafficking was one of a bunch of different like justifications. He was also very good at Islamophobia. He was also very good at, at you know, a cluster of, of the worst possible things that, that people can say and do is, is kind of epitomized in, in Trump's positions on migration. But the question I ask myself and the question I think is, is worth asking more generally is, is anti-trafficking driving any of this or is anti-trafficking simply being kind of bolted on to something that, that people were already going to do anyway? And, and, and I think this is, is an important point because anti-trafficking, I'm not convinced that it has the independent power to persuade, to change. To, to drive policy that, that a lot of people in this field tend to kind of assume that it does. So, so the, the, the most significant investments that, that occur in relation to, to anti-trafficking, anti-slavery, whatever you want to call it, are in relation to, to, to questions of commercial sex and are in relation to, to issues of, of the border and preventing and deterring movement. So... Uh, in Europe, in the Mediterranean crisis, you see just endemic slippage between smuggling and trafficking. And, and smugglers become trafficking, traffickers, stopping traffickers becomes a moral justification for pushbacks and all kinds of horrendous stuff in the Mediterranean, in Syria, in Turkey, in Greece, and now in, in Belarus, um, and so on. But it's not clear to me, at least, that, that this language of anti-trafficking is doing much independent work. What, what, where these policies start from is a desire amongst governments driven by the, the most reactionary and xenophobic parts of their population to, to stop the boats, to build a wall, to construct a fortress. And, and that's the starting point. And then from there, anti-trafficking gets bolted on to this existing set of policy preferences. Um, and it gives a, a kind of moral facade. It, it says that we should stop the traffickers. But, but no one really thinks that European nations are deeply and emotionally invested in the welfare of migrants from Africa seeking sanctuary. And just like no one should realistically expect that Donald Trump is deeply concerned about the, the, the welfare of these, these Mexicans, that he, he says that the wall will stop being smuggled and trafficked into the United States. So you can call it trafficking, you can call it slavery, you can call it whatever the hell you want. But that language is not the catalyst. That language is not what is driving this. And, and, the, the issues around commercial sex are not exactly equivalent, but they are 
broadly similar. So, so the, the, the questions of commercial sex often boil down to a, a strong opposition to the idea that, that sex can and should be sold. And, and that's where people start. That there's a significant constituency within society which is opposed for ideological and moral reasons to the idea that sex work is work. And, and this debate is often framed as, as between different versions of feminists. So you have the kind of anti-porn, anti-prostitution campaigners following kind of, you know, Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon. In, in opposition to, to, to a different generation of feminists. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I also think we need to recognize that the, the anti-sex work stance also comes from a, a, a strong conservative currents within society. So, so anti-sex work is often reduced to second-wave feminism, but you'll often see it in, in, in conservative countries, like strong Catholic countries, strong Islamic countries. Opposition to sex workers' work is, is not based upon a, a radical reading of feminism. It's based around ideas of patriarchy and, and the, the protection of women and girls and so on and so forth. So within that framework, you have a powerful constituency within society that's connected often to, to religious and conservative institutions, which is deeply opposed to the idea that, that we should treat sex workers' work. And then from that starting point, you get anti-trafficking and anti-slavery bolted onto that pre-existing position. So it, it's not clear to me that the, the, the anti-trafficking, anti-slavery bit of this equation is, is doing that much work. It is politically valuable. If you oppose the idea of sex workers' work, you constantly come back to this, this motifs of, of trafficking and slavery because invoking this language of trafficking and slavery is a very good way of denying the claim that sex workers' work because... It pushes everything into an abstract moral register and basically says that commercial sex, by definition, is is completely unacceptable and therefore should not be regulated. Sex workers shouldn't have rights. They just should not be able to sell sex whatsoever. So on both of these big issues, border protection and commercial sex, I'm not convinced that which language you choose is moving the needle around the politics of this issue. What we need to understand that this anti-trafficking, anti-slavery thing is as a set of rhetorical weapons and strategies that different members in the society are calling upon in order to advance positions they already hold. And, and I, I think that's really important. People kind of assume that, that if you use the language of slavery, it, it's, it's like the language of genocide. You're, you're pushing this big red button. You're saying this is urgent, this is unacceptable, that, that the cavalry must come immediately, everyone must be mobilized in immediate and, and unstinting opposition to, to, to the existence of slavery in the world. But I'm not convinced that the slavery bit does that much work. People have been calling all kinds of things slavery for, for many, many years. I mean, the, 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 the 13 colonies, when they separated from England, 
were, were busy kind of declaring the, an end to, to English tyranny as a form of slavery. So you can call all kinds of things slavery. And of course, the 13 colonies were, were very good at actual enslavement. At the time, they were decrying the, the, the enslavery of the British crown and, and their need for independence. So when we call something slavery, it may work, it may not work. But I'm not convinced that, that this language has the kind of independent weight that is often assumed. And, and you can see this, for example, in, in relation to Xinjiang in China. So, so right now there's a really significant mobilization going on in, in, in Xinjiang where it's clear that the, the Chinese government is engaged in, in, in really kind of horrific forms of surveillance and control, and part of that is tied to forced labor schemes associated with cotton production. And, and you can see the language of slavery being mobilized, you can see the language of forced labor being mobilized in relation to uh, Chinese abuses in Xinjiang. Now, I'm not saying any of these charges are, are not true. It's clear that, that what's happening in, in Xinjiang is, is fundamentally awful. And, and we should be anxious about it. But the fact that it's China and the fact that China is being positioned as this enemy of the United States, as this enemy of whatever the hell the West still is or isn't or that identity mm. is the reason why there's, there's so much more animating concern and political interest in relation to slavery and forced labor in Xinjiang yeah. than there is, for example, forced labor in Uzbekistan or, or Tajikistan, which are similar practices, similar populations, and similar presences within the, the, the global economy in terms of cotton production. Um, so you can talk about a concern with forced labor, you can talk about a concern with slavery. Both of these things are happening in, in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan as they are happening in, in Xinjiang. The reason the Xinjiang one gets far more concerned than the, the, the Uzbek one is because it's not the, the slavery label that's doing the work, it's the pre-existing positions and agendas and interests that elevate and extend the language of slavery in a way that, that, that slavery doesn't have the independent power to do. So, so I, I think we've got to be careful about assuming that the labels create policy and drive interventions because in a lot of cases, I think it's the other way around. I think it's those pre-existing interests and agendas which bend the labels in various ways. Yeah, thank you, uh, Joel, for this. And it's interesting to learn from you. And, and so many questions are coming up. But uh, I also would like to stick my question. And uh, I was just thinking about when you're talking about policies. I think it's... Uh, the series on, on UN protocol on trafficking and on beyond slavery website that you you are part of so there have been a lot of discussion whether this policy regarding trafficking should continue or it should be dismantled and and different scholars have argued there and you also have contributed there so 
I was just wondering uh, to ask you, like, what is exactly the way forward? Because, uh, as as you have mentioned, that it you know, it is not going anywhere. So, uh, what would you suggest, like, to younger researchers like me who are working on these issues, or the policymakers at the UN level, that what actually we need to be careful uh, while making policies and doing research, and also what is actually the way forward on this entire debate? Yeah. So I. That's a big one, and and again, depending on which day you ask, I, I, and whether I'm feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the world, I might kind of change the answer. Um, just at, at the risk of, of briefly plugging a, a project I'm involved in, I, I just think it might be worth saying a little bit about this 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 beyond trafficking and slavery project that, that we've been running. Yeah. So so it's me and a bunch of colleagues from, from different parts of the world and we've been running since 2014 and, and what we're trying to do with this project is it's called Beyond Trafficking and Slavery is to to construct a kind of counterpoint to the ways in which people kind of think about these issues and the types of policies which tend to be paired with, with some of the most exaggerated and extreme and problematic uses and, and references to, to slavery and trafficking. Um, I think the beyond in the title is is illustrative for me. So, so one of the projects we did late last year was was set up as as a question about tactics and strategy, and 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 we we asked a bunch of people whether or not they thought they were better off on the inside and 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 this better off on the inside framing is something you hear when you talk to to policymakers or activists or people within the machine broadly conceived and and they'll tell you that we're better off on the inside where we're better using this language of slavery we're, we're better adhering to the the this anti-trafficking framework um we understand that, that there's problems with this organized crime framing, but if we go back to talking about human rights, no one will listen to us, so we should stay within anti-trafficking as organized crime because people actually give a shit about organized crime, and consequently, if you're in the machine, if you're, you're kind of on the ship, you can steer the ship in, in different directions. And, and this is the idea. Are we better off on the inside? Um, I can understand why people make those calculations. Uh, a lot of people working on issues associated with modern slavery, human trafficking, forced labor, will say there's, there's, there's value in staying on the ship and trying to steer it in more productive directions. And, and part of that calculation is, is, I think, a reasonable one. Like over the, the last 30-odd years... Other causes, other campaigns have, have, have been struggling. So, so the, the counterpoint that you can make with, with modern slavery is migrant rights or, or workers' rights. And, and in the, the period of the last 30 years, we've, we've had massive decline in organized labor. We've had corporations busy kind of stripping out labor protections, offshoring, deregulating, 
you know, engaging in, in complicated forms of supply chain machinations. So, you know, it's, it's not easy for workers right now. And, and it's not getting any easier for workers. And it's, it's the same with migrants. It's, it's, we, we, I don't even need to give examples. And I shouldn't be laughing because it's tragic on an epic scale. But the, the world is not friendly to migrants. The, the xenophobia and the, the populist projects that are tied to it have made things really difficult and unpleasant. And lots of really horrific things are, are kind of happening in the world to, to, to people who are vulnerable and deserving of our protection and support. So th this question, are you better on the inside? People have seen that, that, that migrant rights are struggling. People have seen that worker rights are struggling. And, and a strategic calculation has been made that if you can't win on those fronts, if you gravitate to this, this language of, of modern slavery, this language of anti-trafficking, you'll get purchase you'll get access, you'll get resources, you'll get insider passes to the highest levels of, of policymaking. And, and you see this all over the world. Like, you know, I, people who campaign for migrant rights are not invited to the halls of power. Modern slavery campaigners are invited to the halls of power all the time. They're fated. They hold press conferences. They, they, they are quintessential insiders and and there's something attractive to that and and if i'm honest for people in working in the field it, it's often addictive it, it gives people magnified importance it gives them a sense that they're being listened to mm. and, and and a lot of people have, have found that attractive and as a consequence the, for the strategic and personal and and if i'm honest funding and financial there's, there's funding streams for modern slavery programs in a, in a way that there may not be funding streams for other projects. All of this means that, that there are good reasons why people have strategically calculated that gravitating to this, this language of modern slavery anti-trafficking is tactically wise. You may not be able to, to ensure that migrants crossing the Mediterranean get protection en masse, but, but maybe you can leverage anti-trafficking law in order to assume in order to ensure that a couple of people who might otherwise have been deported get to stay because they get a determination that they're a trafficking victim. And, and people on the front lines, lawyers doing public interest litigation, people doing kind of care and support, and all of those really hard, challenging, non-academic, non-research type roles where they're just trying to help the people in front of them for them, this this inside outside dynamic is 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 just not that useful or relevant because there's people in front of them that they need help, and by using this language of slavery and trafficking, you can enhance your your um, likelihood of, of getting the people in front of you help. So there's a case for, for for being on the inside. You get access, you get influence, you get funding streams. You don't have to deal with the the, the incredibly hostile headwinds that face organized labor and migrant rights organizations. So, so anti-trafficking here is, is a kind of safe space politically. Um, and, and people have and will continue to do good work within this safe space. The problem, and, and this is where I, I kind of pivot to, to say why I, I think ultimately this, this, this life on the inside is a trap, 
is that these conversations about anti-slavery, these conversations about anti-trafficking end up displacing the kinds of political conversations we need to be having about inequality and racism and discrimination and vulnerability and migration and, and how workers get paid and, and, and what rights they have and how they fight for them. So here I worry that, that life on the inside is a short-term win at long-term cost. And, and I worry about that because anti-slavery, anti-trafficking, the form that it's been constructed is, is incredibly politically safe. In, instead of challenging systems of, of, of exclusion around borders, you instead say the borders are fine. They may even be humanitarian because they protect us from, from the traffickers. Um, which means that, that you've set up a problem on terms where you can't grapple with the systems, with the structures, with the underlying reasons why and how people remain vulnerable. And it's the same with, with, with economics. If you understand the, the problem of, 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 of labor exploitation as being a small number of exceptional cases most of which are in the global south, most of which are understood to be irregular, bad apples, individual employers, you basically set up a, a diagnostic framework which sanitizes and excuses and even legitimates global capitalism. So, so there's, there's a parallel that can be drawn here. In the 90s, concerns were expressed about sweatshops as a space where apparel was constructed, where Nike and Reebok shoes were made. And, and in this framing, the problem was the sweatshop. The problem was a form of predatory global capitalism, which where lead firms leverage their market power in order to, to position people further down the train in situations of vulnerability, where their immediate employers are obliged to pay them next to nothing in order to meet the production cycles and targets of, of the apparel companies, of the, the shoe manufacturers. And, and if you conceive of the sweatshop, and there's problems with sweatshop campaigns, don't get me wrong, but if you conceive of the sweatshop as a problem, you conceive of the supply chain and the economic system that's associated with it as a problem. If you instead understand that exact same problem in relation to modern slavery and forced labor, you've shifted your diagnostic framework. The problem is no longer the sweatshop. The problem is the small number of bad employers who push their workers too far and end up in situations where they end up being subject to extreme exploitation and deprivation. So, so in the first version of, of diagnosing and understanding the problem, it's the system which is the problem. In, in the modern slavery version of the problem, the system is fine. What you need to do is get rid of aberrations and exceptions within it. These, these rare and highly troublesome cases of modern slavery. And what that does, in effect, is create a system where as long as you are not physically exploiting someone to the point of death and abusing them within an inch of their life and perhaps even beyond, as long as you're not doing that, these highly exceptional, highly individualized, unbelievably atrocious cases, 
As long as you're not doing that, your supply chain is fine. But what you pay your workers is is perfectly reasonable as long as you are not treating them in this absolutely exceptional and abhorrent way. And and what that does is it sets up a diagnostic framework where global capitalism, global supply chains, global inequalities exists on the margins of the frame. What you're instead trying to do is prioritize and target and remember, this is super difficult logistically at the best of times. The small number of cases regarded as aberrant and exceptional. And, and what that means, in essence, is that you may gain from life on the inside. You may make some tactical advantages, but you've set up a problem in such a way that the underlying root causes of the problem are not part of your political agenda. And, and this is attractive. Corporations love to, to, to declare their, their opposition to modern slavery. You know, you've got hotel chains busy training their, their employees to spot the signs of trafficking victims. The fact that these hotel chains exploit their own workers is, of course, not something they want to talk about. You've got companies like Google and Amazon doing projects like Tech Against Trafficking, where they declare that they're going to use all their algorithmic genius in order to identify, and they're terrible at this, but that's a different story, to identify cases of exploitation online, on the dark web, and all the rest of this stuff. Yet Amazon and, and, and Google and Facebook are, are busy kind of engaging in these mass systems of exploitation. I mean, Amazon has its own entity. If it paid and treated its workers as human beings would itself have a major influence upon the general well-being of, of people in the world simply because of how many people Amazon employs. So it's easy and comforting to, to declare that, that we all want to fight this, this horrible scrounge of, of modern slavery and human trafficking. But you've set the problem up in such a way that you're trying to target individualized cases of extreme exploitation and abuse. And if you're trying to target individualized cases of extreme exploitation and abuse, you, you've set up a problem where you're looking for exceptions. You're not dealing with systems. And you have a cause that everyone can get behind because you're not taking direct challenges, not making a direct challenge to the economic and political and migration systems which structure our world. So, so modern slavery is super popular. Politicians love it. Corporations love it. They love it because they don't find it threatening. And that's partly because they understand it primarily in relation to commercial sexual exploitation. And, and they're busy exploiting other kinds of workers. And, and they love it because instead of dealing with the idea that, that workers as workers need rights, they need a living wage, they need support, they need protection, they, they need somewhere to go to when their wage is stolen, they need protection against deport, deportation if they're on a visa, all of those things. None of that is part of the conversation because you've reconfigured the problem in such a way that the only thing you have to do is deal with these individuals in acute distress. As long as they're not in acute distress, you don't have to do anything about them because they fall outside the frame of modern slavery because they're not in acute distress. And, and what that means, in essence, is that modern slavery is an inherently conservative cause. 
it, it's a status quo cause. It's a cause that people in positions of privilege and power and wealth are attracted to because it doesn't demand anything of them in terms of changing how the systems which organize our world are structured. And as a consequence of that, they get to pat themselves on the back and say that they're doing something to, to fight these horrible things while simultaneously reinforcing a system which leaves billions of people in the world vulnerable and marginalized and exploited. And as a consequence of that, I would, with all respect, say that we should not be talking about modern slavery. We should not be talking about human trafficking. We should be talking about the rights and protections that workers as workers need, the rights and protections that migrants as migrants need. And if we can't engage with the idea that the, the billions of people that work in precarious spaces need more protection than simply not being enslaved and exploited in the most severe terms, we're setting up a, a system which is going to end up displacing the types of political conversations we need to have. Thank you, Joel, for this deep insight. And it's very interesting to learn from you that how the system of you know capitalism on the one side and then the religion and other other aspects are also you know connected with with this uh, discourse of human trafficking and modern slavery and and definitely it is it is focusing on a particular set of uh, communities or individuals rather than focusing on the entire discourse of exploitation or marginalization of workers or migrants uh, it's it's lovely to have you here and personally for me your work is an inspiration so thank you very much for uh, joining me here Jewel. thanks a lot I, I hope that was useful and i think this is a really important initiative and i wish you all the best with it in in the future thank so you. be well thank you